Hello, friends, and welcome to the Liberty Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Patrick McFarlane. And with me on the horn, I have Jose Gallison. How are you doing, bud? Doing great. Just, just killing it lately. Just having fun. You? Yeah, you, you've been real busy, man. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. I'm just, just having fun, you know, networking, meeting people. Just, I don't know. I feel like I'm just getting to that point where you're just, you're just, you're just, I don't know. We're just meeting some, uh, doing a lot of networking, you know. I don't know. Just living life, having a fun time. Uh, we were talking before how I kind of went to the, uh, the uh, Soho debate, so I kind of just met more Liberty people, and just I don't know, just really fun. You meet new people in the discussions. I, I don't know, like uh, talked to Reed recently, so because I was renowned for saying that Lib Unity is fake and gay, but now uh, he's got me to come around to at least that is fake and gay in one sense, and also based and awesome in another. It just depends on your view, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah I, I was thinking just now that when we did our first uh, installment of this series, so this is the second episode you'll see from the title, uh, but we're talking about uh, the monopoly on violence. We're doing a documentary review of that. But when we started it out with with uh, episode one on your show, I was like, dude, you're, you're busy. You've been doing all kinds of stuff. So it just hasn't ended. <laughs> yeah, it never ends. Yeah. It keeps on going. Oh, yeah. Oh, big one. I got Phil Labonte. I don't know how I landed that whopper. I yeah. got him uh, on, I think, Thursday I'm recording. I mean, I don't know when this will drop, but it probably still won't be released by the time this comes out. So I was really excited about that. But uh, yeah, yeah, I would. Um, I was going to ask him on, but I think I'd be afraid that I'd, I'd ask him too much about Kill Switch Engage. <laughs> Just like, uh, oh, remember that time that you filled in for Howard Jones on Kill Switch Engage? Oh, yeah, I didn't that... Know that was a thing, honestly. Oh, hell yeah. So yeah. I. Do you listen to all that remains at all? Not, oh, well, not so I don't listen to them like religiously. They were like a huge b- a band of mine in like high school. Like uh, I listened to Fall of Ideals like religiously. Like yeah. it was like like always on when I was like uh, I don't know if it was my senior or junior summer while I was out doing you know degenerate stuff. But <laughs> yeah, it's played a big part of my life for sure. But uh, yeah, I don't know if I, necess- I I'm not like I religiously follow or anything like that. But it. Definitely is very like surreal to be like talking to this guy that I used to like, I don't know, rail rail listen to while I was railing pills off the the off <laughs> a, a toilet in some <laughs> store or something. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, and I, I I think that I would I would sorry for the the folks who don't know who Phil Labonte is. He's the lead singer of All That Remains. He's a libertarian. He's a Ron Paul guy, right? And um, so he he's been active in the libertarian community. He was on Tim Pool a few times, and so he he's a cool guy. Um, but I've always been a Kill Switch Engage fan, and not much of an All That Remains fan. But I knew that he he filled in for Howard Jones when he left the band, and he did a whole tour with Kill Switch. So I'd probably just, anyways, talk about that a whole bunch. So <laughs> I would ask him on. I'd be too star starstruck because I've known who he is for a long time, man. Yeah, it's so. a little starstruck. I shot my shot. I was actually like yeah. debating whether to shoot my shot. I sent like some tweet and like about like some episode he was on somewhere else, and then he like liked it and then retweeted it, and then I was like, well, you know. And then Do I commented, I commented like, hey man, I'd love to have you show, blah 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 blah, like kind of like on Twitter, and then he liked it, but he yeah. never replied. So then I was oh. like in this weird like, do I DM him? Like <laughs> slide uh, in. Yeah. So I was like, I did, but I was very on the edge. It's like almost yeah. like. It's like with women when you're like dating. I mean, you're both married, but it's like they send these signals and we're just dumb men. And you're like, right. do you want me or not? <laughs> you, should, you should ask Phil about that. Yeah, right? I mean, I can completely get it. I mean, he has like something ridiculous, like almost 100,000 followers. Yeah. So I'm sure he's just getting blown up all the time. So. Well, I mean, hey, man, if, if you never ask, then it's not going to happen. You know, yep. not mm-hmm. someone's not going to bug you about coming on your podcast. Unless yeah. you're like Joe Rogan or something. So, <laughs> yeah. So, well, let, let's get started off here. I, where we left off was with the social contract. And I know we talked about, we covered a whole lot of issues and a lot of them that I have never talked about before. Uh, like education, we talked about a whole bunch. Um, but we left off on the social contract. And this is actually a topic I did, I covered a lot kind of early on in my show. So, uh, you know, in your episode, you talk about, um, or excuse me, your article, you talk about the social um, contract. We'll have a link in the show notes page here. Uh, this should be libertyweekly.net forward slash 166. Um, but, you know, you talk about how Michael uh, Humor came on on the, uh, the documentary and then Jeff Deist was going through and talking about it too. 
Uh, any anything just to start us off with, Jose? Uh, I do like how humor breaks it, it breaks down the social contract. I've heard him do it a few times. That was probably one of the earliest times you're hearing him break it down. It's just great because he breaks down very logical. It's very much like seeing like Spooner break down the uh, the Constitution. It's, it comes from a very logical, completely like legal framework of like this is why this is dumb. And uh, yeah, I mean you probably have more to add to it than I do. This isn't my wheelhouse. Uh, this is definitely your spot. The social contract and such. I just know at the end of the day I didn't sign Jack. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, yeah, I mean, my take on it, it's very Spoonerite. I I just kind of tried to adapt it for the more modern time, you know, more modern arguments. Um, I'm trying to find my episode number where I did a deep dive on this. But basically, I mean, we we didn't agree to anything. Everyone is dead now. Um, You know, even... Like if if the if the Constitution is the closest thing I think we have to a real social contract, um, the Constitution cannot be a contract because it's lacking in the actual elements. Because there's elements to a contract formation. Uh, there's um, an offer, acceptance of that offer, and a mutual assent and consideration. And those are things you learn in law school. But um, not to get too technical, but libertarian contract theory doesn't believe in consideration. It's just this concept of a bargain for exchange that you get in law school. But essentially, I mean, it, it's all Jack because what, what, what would you say that the offer is? Is there, is there any real offer? Like the, the state comes in and they don't care if you assent or not. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that kind of gets that with the, uh, I mean, the biggest thing for me is implied consent. Cause that's always the argument that they go to is implied consent that, Oh, it's just implied. Yeah. Like, you don't, what do you mean? Like you could just ask me. And I know that's one thing humor goes into a lot that's like, but they don't. And there's a reason why they don't, because they know that there would be people who didn't. So that it's like kind of the, uh, you know, pre, pre uh, assuming there, that people would uh, take this contract without asking them is kind of a perfect little cop-out to get out of having to ask them, knowing full well there would be people who wouldn't. And that would kind of make their whole system fall apart. And it's funny, too, because you'll hear people make that argument. They're like, well, yeah, but then it would like we wouldn't. This wouldn't be able to do it. Like there would be people who wouldn't. And it's like that. Yeah, that's the point exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's exactly the point. There are people who wouldn't, and your system wouldn't work. And that's the whole flaw with this. So it's inherently there's no. You don't just get to say you have my consent because you want my consent. Like that's not how that works. You know. So. Or they'll say something about like uh you know the, this concept of an uh, an implied contract is where. You know, you go into a store and you grab a candy bar and you go up to the cash register and you put the candy bar on the cash register. Even though there wasn't any communication or anything there, there were certain actions that were taken which would say there's an implicit agreement here. Is that, you know, I'm going to pay for this candy bar and you're going to sell it to me and I'm going to walk out of the store and, you know, put money on the counter or whatever. But but that doesn't, I mean, that just... It, it, you, you can't point to anything like that aside from, you know, I'm here, I've stayed on this piece of dirt for long enough, I've used the roads and the public utilities that are in place because I have no other choice, right? That's the key distinction here. And if I don't pay for it, um, I'll be extorted at gunpoint. So it, in duress is, you know, it, it's a defense to contract formation. So going into that too, but the constitution, it cannot be legislation either and, or, or any social contract because, and I use Tom Woods here, this is libertyweekly.net forward slash 28. Um, but I, I use, I use Tom Woods's argument. I don't know if you ever heard this episode of the Tom Woods show. He goes into like, I think it was um, Robert Nozick's explanation of when does someone else represent me? Like, so, you know, I, I make one vote. I'm one of 300,000 people that vote for a senator and that senator goes to wall or goes to Congress. And, you know, I don't have any control over what he says. Does that person represent me? And then he kind of takes it back by degrees. And I say that the, the only true representation would be an agency relationship where I have recourse against my representative if they don't do what I say. So that's, that's kind of the legal concepts behind it. So, any anything? Sorry to kind of go off there, Jose, but no, no. I mean, to bring it back, the only, the only way I was I've ever been able to make the contract theory sort of kind of work, and even then, I guess it kind of sidesteps the contract theory. Is if you assume that the, the 
federal government has a proper and legitimate property claim over the entirety of the United States. And that's kind of when you get into property rights and how you're like, well, that's not, that's not, no, they don't, they don't have a legitimate claim to it. And so that's, that's the only way it works. And I mean, that's kind of, man, I don't, I'm not, I'm about to drone on doing a whole other thing and going to Hoppe's uh, freaking covenant things, but we'll, we'll move on. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure we'll probably go more into that later. I forget what yeah. all we got left. So. Well, I was going to say it'd be fine if you did, but, um, <laughs> I got a whole, you know, I started working in real estate now and there's this concept of, it's just fascinating how we actually deal with property claims because this whole system has come up about, you know, how you, how you do that. It's one thing to, you know, wax poetic as a libertarian, a hoppian, propertarian, but um, actually seeing that happen. But of course it all comes with, oh, in the United States, all property title originates from patent, which is when the United States government writes on a piece of paper that, you know, John Brown Farmer has the old 40, you know, on, on section range, whatever. So, um, I, I don't know. It's just the whole system is just set up in a yeah. statist way. Mm. So, um, the, the next, uh, the next paragraph here, we're talking about, um, the next one is democracy. So first we go from the social contract, then democracy. And uh, is it humor or Hoimer? It's like a, it's a German thing. I know when they put the E after the U, it, it's like an umlaut. I think it's Michael Humor, but. Um, humor. That's how I've always seen it pronounced. So. Okay. <laughs> I'm terrible at pronouncing things, so. <laughs> I got you. Um, and then Dave Smith comes into that, you know, this this myth of democracy. And I know that we we touched on this in our last episode, but we kind of go from the divine right of kings through history, like, you know, the, the idea that the, the monarch and the leader was literally endowed by God or the gods and chosen to rule over everyone else to kind of something that seems a little more participatory where they people have kind of seen through the illusion because throughout the years um, we, we, re, we scramble at authority to argue against the king saying they can't do certain things. So now they reinvent things kind of around World War One, top of all the monarchs, and come up with this idea of democracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I. Uh, it is kind of funny how we have always, I've kind of always had this idea that democracy was, I mean, I know for me, like growing up through, you know, public school and stuff, I had this concept that democracy was an improvement. I mean, I did even under the lore of the founding fathers and stuff, I was like, but it's not as good as the constitutional Republic, but it's, it's still an improvement from monarchy. But it's like, that's one of the great things about Hoppus. I genuinely believe that uh, a true monarchy is preferable to democracy. Cause I mean, once you start analyzing it from a very logical way, so you, then you start realizing like, Oh shit. Like this like move to democracy was a regression, you know, like, so yeah. I mean, cause in, in a sense, like while it is perverse under monarchy, you can kind of – it kind of makes more sense in a lot of ways. It's almost like they kind of have a – it's like property claims and – I don't know. It, it, it's definitely preferable. We can obviously go into the weeds there, but it's just funny how our modern sensibilities is how democracy is this good thing. And it's even then it's ironic because we do have this like, oh, constitutional republics are preferable, but even then there's always this like weird hallowed nature of any time democracy is, you know, you know – called forth as a word like even amongst like republicans you know but it's weird they'll talk out of both sides of their mouth they'll be like how democracy is you know the majority but both sides when they need to they will they will call upon the hallowed name of democracy you know even even then but on the other side of their mouth they will fully be like oh well it's a constitutional republic you know it just they're kind of playing both sides of the field you know what i mean but even then it's kind of a hide the hide the ball type thing because when really it's like well both suck you know, Constitutional Republic is just, you know, a democracy with more steps. So, like, that's all it is. Yeah, yeah and I, I think both of them have the, the tendency to create, like, an oligarchical class, mm-hmm. essentially. And I think the, one of the big arguments as to why monarchy is preferable, and I, I see this as a good argument, is that, you know, um, time preference and the fact that incentives matter. So... If the government is essentially privately owned by a monarch, does the monarch not have the incentive to preserve the kingdom for his own lifetime, but also for his progeny and his line? Um, so you can see the the time preference setting up there. But then again, uh, you have the problem of inept rulership as well. Mm-hmm. 
you know, like what happens if if the king turns out to be a wastrel or something like that? And well, that's and, that's why monarchs died like a drop like a what's a drop like a God I forget what the friggin' uh, the guillotine. Well, that I was there's oh. a friggin' thing I was trying to they they died like crazy back in the day. Yeah, yeah. that's why there was always someone else taking over from someone else. You know, someone's brother killed someone. It's they kind of take care of that themselves, and then it also kind of goes into warfare in those in those systems. Uh, while it, we did have a tendency of people thought they were more bloody, but really it was like, but yeah, but it was like the the royal classes that were engaging in warfare, and the peasants kind of stayed out of it. And even then, it was kind of like that was it's almost like it was a more fair deal because under feudal systems, it was like you got hey, here's a deal, here's your parchment of land. Uh, you get to be a lord over this, but your deal is when I call upon you, you're going to come fight. I mean, that seems like a pretty fair deal. I mean, obviously, it's not ideal. We have our issues, but and it kind of kept the peasants out of it. It was kind of like you almost had responsibility that came along with that, you know, whereas now we send our poor to go fight our wars. So, you know, and I, and I, two on the same side, you, you had some recourse, some ways to restrain the king because I've, I've done you know, I'm not an expert on this by any means, but I've done a fair amount of work on just the the conceptual behind what led to the Magna Carta and the just the the bare fact that all of the the royals, in a sense, all the barons and the king's court, they um, they restrained the king because the king needed the cooperation of the court to do what he wanted to do, and so they eventually found out their own power and realized that they could, uh, you know, hold the purse strings. And that was the first concept of limiting the powers of the monarch that came into being. So at least in, in Great Britain, in England. And I, I think there's there's a real tradition of liberty in England that doesn't get the credit I think it deserves. Yeah, and one thing I was kind of touching on, I don't know if I made it very clear for those listening, I was also kind of getting at how democracy dissipates responsibility. So... You have, you know, in, in a monarchical, monarchical, in a monarchy, uh, in, in that type of society, you have, uh, in theory, one king. And he is the one who most people see as responsible for, in some sense, all the goings on. I mean, you can kind of sort of dissipate the responsibility by lords and so on and so forth. But ultimately, it's him. So it's like you have this person that you can off with the head if it comes to, if, if you want to change things, you know, like. Obviously, I'm not saying that necessarily would change things. Uh, I mean, I, I have my issues with, like, revolutions and stuff like that. I don't think that's the way to go. But I'm a big fan of uh, oh. La Boete, the, the, you know, just walk away for, or whatever kind of deal. But, yeah, I mean, there is something, too, that, you know, that king feels that responsibility. That's kind of why they had the whole divine right of kings and it got tied up in religion. Because it was like they were trying to, in some sense, dissipate the, the responsibility. Like, yeah, but, uh, but God. But remember God. Like, he's the, he's the reason why. But... I feel like, I mean, I feel like a lot of people probably realized to some extent that was kind of a cop out. And at the end of the day, it was, it was him. It's on his head, and that's why a lot of kings didn't got separated from their heads. <laughs> so, you know. And, and another another problem that you had, and I, I'm I'm not trying to argue or anything. This is just what happened. Was like, you would have a huge crisis in the country that would last for a long time if there was ever a king that died without heirs or if there was a dispute as to, uh, there's a word for this, but it's it's like the lineage of how crown would pass from person to person. And it's like, could you imagine a political issue being framed in like, who was the closest heir? <laughs> you know, like who who was closest related to the king? That And then you have like different people backing different bids on the throne and then there's like wars and shit. So it's, <laughs> it's just, a, I don't know. It's, it's all bad. So yeah. anarchy is the best. Yeah. Yeah. But it also too, like I was kind of thinking in my head, it almost made it like these like royal skirmishes and stuff almost were very much akin to like competing gangs or mobs. I mean, so in some sense, you know, in the idea of the concept of, you know, some the illusion of authority, I feel like there's, it almost was better in a sense than what we have with democracy now, because it is like, a, I don't know who I was listening to, but some, I was listening to someone they were kind of going to in those days, it very much was like when they had those going on, it was kind of like the peasants were kind of like, well, they're doing their thing. And it wasn't like they were in any way involved. They were just kind of like, oh, and it's kind of the same thing when you have two competing gangs. Like, yeah, there might be people caught in the crossfire, but like you're not really their intended target. They're fighting amongst themselves. Just stay out of it and, you know, whatever. So, in, I mean, while there's a little bit different because those peasants did to some extent recognize them as having, you know, authority over them, but it was 
in other sense, they also were like, yeah, but you know, was it not my pig? You know, that kind of expression, like, like whatever, you know? So it, it's a little bit better than democracy where it's like everyone now it's like, everyone has a stake in this. We are the government, like that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So, and I might be mistaken, but the way that I understand it is that it wasn't until really, you see this a little bit in the civil war, the American civil war, but it seems like it wasn't really until world war one came along that you had the war where civilians were were specifically being targeted you know like in, in the civil obviously there were like raping uh you know of, of cities and villages and towns and regions in the past but it wasn't so explicit until world war one and you know in civil war they had like the bloody georgia you know the burning of yeah. savannah atlanta yeah, civil, yeah, civil savannah. was pretty awful but that was mostly one side and not the side yeah. people think that was doing oh well. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah thanks for pointing that out <laughs> Yeah. Well, let's. Yeah. Um, so we're three paragraphs in now. I do this all the time. <laughs> um, so the, the next one, David Friedman was the next speaker uh, in the Monopoly on Violence. And he talks about how um, he's a law professor. So he talks about how inherently state actors do not bear any cost of their actions. It's all socialized. And this is what, uh, you, you know, you were talking about. It's democracy gives this illusion of we are the government. So therefore, uh, when state actors damage or harm people, those state actors don't have to pay for it. It's actually the taxpayers that have to pay for it. So uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano comes on. He talks about how uh, the government has interpreted the Commerce Clause, basically has made Congress uh, tyrants in the eyes of the law. And McMakin and Stephen Kinsella come and point out how government is unnecessarily using principles of uh, sorry, how government is unnecessary and they use principles of inter international law to prove that point. Um, so so anything just to add right off the bat? Yeah, the Friedman one's probably the biggest thing that stands out for me because that is, what he's getting at is the incentive problem, which I, we've kind of danced around a little bit here in this discussion so far. But the incentive problem was probably one of the biggest things that was like, I mean, it wasn't one of the ones that like made any major shift, but once that clicked in my head, I was kind of like, oh... Like, cause that is a big thing. Cause it's like, cause the whole idea of like minarchy is like, well, if only good, to, if only we could get good people in, or if only we could, you know, but it's like, but the idea is like, we have the structure and you have to analyze its incentives and all of its incentives go one way. And sure you could get all the best people in and you might get some sort of small win and move it a certain way, but you know what? It's just going to go right back because the incentives are the way they are. And that's kind of what he's getting at there in that, I mean, there's not really even any way you can get around that is these elected officials bear no responsibility for, I mean, they do in a sense, you could be like, oh, well, they might not get voted in, but like, let's be real. Like the populace at large, do they really pay attention to every little nitinoid, you know, budget proposal and stuff like that? No, they don't. So at the end of the day, if so-and-so, you know, votes for this thing, you know, that's a huge, you know, I don't know, huge, I don't know, public works project that's super overbloated or whatever, like... And it's, you know, obviously so-and-so is probably getting kickbacks. He's probably never going to pay any, any have to pay anything for that. The only, I mean, even if like I kind of brought up corruption a little bit even there, the only time like corruption ever becomes a thing is when they go against each other. And then that's when it becomes a thing. You know, like we saw that with Trump where he kind of like uh, rocked the boat a little bit. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, 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 look at this corruption, you know, but everyone's engaged in corruption. I mean, I kind of went off the weeds a little bit there, but yeah, no, the incentives issues are all off. Uh, and so they bear nothing for it. So it's like, you look at Biden, he, he's, he's like damn near at the, the average death age at this point. Like he has what, probably maybe a decade left of his life. Like he could completely tank the United States and nothing would come of it. At the end of the day, he would enrich himself and his family and they would, they would, he could completely just bankrupt the nation entirely. And he's going to have paid nothing for it whatsoever. So, yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add to that or, if, I mean, I kind of I got rant over. <laughs> no, no, well, they, uh, I, I saw this today at work. So, get this. If the local county treasurer, if they miscalculate taxes and they end up charging people less money for taxes than is proper, than they actually owe, the county can retroactively go back and collect those taxes. Ooh. Now, I think there is a statute of limitations of two or three years, 
but the county can still go back and they can even collect taxes from people who don't own the property anymore. And, and so it's like, even if the, the state official makes a mistake, there's no, you know, they, the state is still owed their due. There's no recourse against the county treasurer. The state can still, you know, go in and knock people up for though. That's a different definition, but they can knock those people around for their, their tax due. And, and it's like, you know, I, I always try and this is like a little, it's a little needle, a little bomb that I slip normies is like, I was asked them this question, like, so if you own a piece of land in fee simple, you own it outright, and um, you still have to pay property taxes on it every year, is that land ever really yours? You essentially have to pay rent to the government. So is that land really yours? I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you either own it or you don't. I mean, that's kind of the concept of ownership. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's a feudal system. I mean, you're really just leasing the land. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. I, it, in, in a sense, I guess the property taxes, I'm pretty sure they go exclusively to your county or your, your local government. Um, but still, it's your local, uh, what, Fife Lord? Is that what they call them? The Baron? <laughs> I don't remember what the, 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 those terms. So, um, just to touch on McMakin and Kinsella, I you know I, I can't remember the points that they made about international law, but have you ever heard the theory that like the states of the world already exist in a state of anarchy, like yes. the government? Yeah, that's what he was getting at, if I remember correctly. That yeah, it was the, the whole concept of they're like, well, anarchy can't happen, but it's like, well, if you look at the the if you look at the countries at almost as if they were individuals, if we pretended they were individual, you know, entities. They kind of interact in that regard anyways. So, you know, yeah. So uh, in the next portion here, and I have to admit that I'm not as well read on like the different kinds of, of anarchy. You know, I've, I've heard some things about anarcho-syndicalism and uh, mutualism and anarcho-communism, of course, anarcho-primitivism, transhumanism. <laughs> uh, I'm forgetting a whole bunch, Christian anarchism. So what... Um, I know that I think you're a little more studied than I am on this topic. So I, I don't know if you want to just, what, what are some highlights of this section of the, the documentary? Oh, you're going to have to refresh me a little bit on that, on that part. Uh, maybe breeze over the, the paragraph. Cause I don't have it in front of me. So I, I don't oh, know. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Here. So, so <laughs> basically, you know, we're just talking about all of the uh, figures of anarchy's past, like Emma mm -hmm. Goldman, Lysander Spooner, Rothbard. Um, but you know, Proudhon, I'm sure is one person. Uh, that was talked about in the documentary. Um, isn't there a Tolstoy was one the Christian anarchist? I think so. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I, they, I, if that's this part I remember correctly, they kind of do go more into you know kind of the origins of anarchy and how they do. I know a lot of people of our ilk really regret to uh, say it, but it does have its roots in left anarchy. You know, with you know maybe socialism, anarcho-communism, whatever you want to call it. I mean, socialism and communism to some extent are basically kind of borderline inter interchangeable. Um, I mean, I don't know. I know some people will define, I was literally listening to um, a debate with Keith Knight today and he had a, he had a socialist on who literally said the exact thing. They're, they're, they're exchangeable. It's kind of the hide the ball thing. Like there, I've heard other people say before socialists who say, well, communism, socialism, not the same thing, whatever, basically the same thing. It's really just a matter of degrees. But uh, yeah, and I mean that's kind of where it came from. Um, Emma Goldman is one of the earlier ones, so that's a good example of it. And it is kind of cool to see these older figures and where they came from. I think even uh, Spooner had some like kind of lefty-ish kind of yeah. uh, views on things. Because I know I've gotten a couple arguments before where people were like shitting on Spooner, and you're kind of like, well, I mean. I, I don't know. He's still better than damn near everyone else at the time. Right. So. I, I can I can land some critiques of Spooner, but you know he I, I like Spooner a lot. So yeah, but I, I don't. Yeah, like this goes into it. I mean, obviously Spooner is a warm spot in my heart. Emma Goldman's very cool. Uh, I mean, she's based as hell, <laughs> but like, and and she was like, I don't know. Say what you will about whether you think her her philosophy was completely consistent or not. I would say it's probably not. You know. Because, uh, I mean, I'm like ant of the ANCAP type, uh, you know, ANCAP agorist, whatever. So I definitely have my issues. But I do, th I do get very irritated with a lot of our type who do like shit on the left anarchists of like being like, 
oh, well, that's that's a contradiction in terms. Like, yeah, sure, maybe technically. But it's like, at the end of the day, you got to interact with people and individuals. And it's like, you know, they can, I don't know, they can still be coming from a it, principled idea in their head. It's just they may have some flaws. Yeah. You know what I mean, like, no, no one's perfect. So I, but, I think a, yeah. a good, if I may, a good example of this, and I don't know if she's an anarchist or not, but um, Caitlin Johnstone, like, uh, I don't know if you read her work at all, but she's a journalist. She's lefty, but she's red-pilled, and she's really good on the war issue. So, you know, obviously I critique some things about her, but I, you know, honestly, I would rather be friends with a red-pilled left anarchist than I would not be friends, but have a discussion with a red-pilled left anarchist than a blue-pilled, you know, anarchist. Yeah, I or, would rather, I'd rather have Jimmy Dore on my show than Justin Amash. Yeah. Like, personally, like, I mean, it's not even like to, like, I'm not even really, like, sliding against Amash, but he's just... He is objectively blue pilled as much as he may not like like that. You you listen to who like the the malice episode. I'm not even trying to shit on him. He's he's great in a lot of ways, but yeah, he is. I, I don't know. I doubt if he hates the state. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know what I mean. I very much doubt that. You ask him if he hates the state, it was like, well, blah, blah, blah. it's like no, this doesn't require speech. <laughs> right, the malice's test of you know whether someone is right wing or left wing. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, there is something to you know. There, I don't know. There, there's a lot of good people on the left, and then you also got to do look at things through historical lens and realize how things came about, and realize how much there was to philosophies being worked out. Like, uh, I mean, we look at like yeah, it came from the left, but and we like to think, and I do agree that we have the consistent principle or consistent uh, position. But at the same time, you have to realize like they didn't have all these like thinkers. Like everyone, you know, no, there's no such thing. As- Well, I think I lost Jose here, so I'm going to keep going until he can rejoin. But um, I think you're right, Jose. Like, there's there's no such thing as the internet at that time, and in a way, it's a lot more impressive for someone to be able to be well read at that time and come up with these more original ideas without having the benefit of having these, uh, like the internet and all these other sources of information to rely upon. Right? I, did you did you come in on that? I, I lost. I, I lost for a second. I, I don't know where you went with that, but uh, it looked like you saved it by continuing talking. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well. Basically, I basically I think you were getting at this is that you know there's there's not a lot of ideas floating around at that time. You can't. Yeah. You don't have the internet. I mean, you have books and stuff. And oddly enough, a lot of people were well read at that time. But you don't. You know, you don't have the the Library of Alexandria at your fingertips at that time. Yeah. No. That's kind of what I was getting at. That, that there's. Like they were, they were at a bit of a disadvantage, and you're looking at these people from you know centuries ago and being like, well, they weren't right. And it's like, yeah, you have the advantage of a whole lot of time and a whole lot of advancement. <laughs> so like, yeah. and yes, they actually generally those people were better read, but I feel like there was probably less, uh, less of a competing of ideas, if there will, because they they may be well read, but they were well read in whatever they could get their hands on, which it wouldn't be as varied as what we can get our hands on, you know? Right. So, but yeah. You know. It, it's um, it's it's different in some ways. I, I don't know if you've heard people talk about this. Is that the wealth of information at our fingertips is actually dumbing us down on the large because we don't have to commit things to memory or have a base knowledge. Yeah. We can just rely, or or the amount of information is just so overwhelming that there's no time to really dig into it. So, yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah. Cause like you can like shit on Emma Goldman and be like she has the wrong position, but it's like. Yeah, but I guarantee you she was way smarter and probably way better read on you than you were yeah. or me or you were. But we have the advantage of like, you know, all these wide range of, you know, resources. Yeah. <laughs> so we have been able to evaluate so, different competing ideas to a better degree. So like right here, it's like, oh, shit, when did that happen? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? Wait, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyways, um. So, so then we kind of get to this, uh, the presentation of the libertarian uh, non-aggression principle. And Walter Block comes on to talk about that, um, kind of popularized by Murray Rothbard. And I, I don't know how much we really have to go into that because I'm sure everyone in the audience is very intimately familiar with the idea of the non-aggression principle. Um, but then Ryan McMakin kind of talks about 
Well, do you want to touch on this difference, Jose, between a minarchist and an anarchist? Uh, I kind of want to. You were saying it. I, I I would like to briefly touch on the NAP. I'm sure anyone watching probably yeah. did, but just for the sake of it, you never know who's watching across it. The NAP is, you know, basically if you're a libertarian worth a damn, that is the backbone of your philosophy to some extent. I mean, I kind of have minor disagreements in a sense, but I mean, that's a way deeper discussion. But for the, for all intents and purposes, the NAP should be the backbone of your of your philosophy if you're a libertarian worth a damn. And the NAP, all this is a non-aggression principle, means you don't get to fuck with people that 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 uh that didn't fuck with you. And by that, you mean like legitimate aggressions. Because you can kind of get a semantic thing where like aggressions or is that just someone being mean to you? Like no, this is someone harming you or your property. And I know you can kind of get in the weeds of discussing it, but that's basically people hurt you or take your stuff, and and that's it. And the only time you get to hurt people or take their stuff is if they hurt you or take your stuff. And it's really that simple. It's I know it it seems crazy. And a lot of people who don't understand the philosophy are like, well, yeah, no, no shit. But it's like, yeah, well now apply that to everything and you're at anarchy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, so, cause I mean, yeah, but I'm, I'm not gonna go on that too much. And anyone who's interested in NFP, you can look in far deeper, but I figured since we brought it up, we should at least mention it briefly. Sure. Right, yeah. 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 Um, no, but so then if we're on kind of basic libertarian stuff, what is the, the difference between a minarchist and an anarchist? Uh, six months of reading. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I've yeah, dropped that I mean, a few times on the show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, it was like actually reading. Period, because I like I got through Minarchy from listening to podcasts, and I never, I just hadn't got back into reading yet. Because I don't know. I mean, I've probably talked before, but I kind of went through. Like, I read a ton as a kid, and then like I kind of got into like the jock and like kind of thing, and I got into like I don't know, hanging out with my buddies and stuff, and I like it was just almost like not the cool thing. And I know, like, now it's like, I look back, I'm like, I was such a nerd for caring what other people thought. Like, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, so it's kind of like, wasn't the cool thing to do. I kind of stopped reading as much. It was also one of those things where I was like one of the smartest kids in my class and whatever. So it was kind of like, I don't know, I guess kind of got away from it. And I kind of rode off my smarts from all that time of reading my entire time through high school because public school is a joke. And um, yeah, anyways, um, yeah, I, I kind of got there. I, I started reading again like much later after getting into like becoming a full on minarchist, Dave Smith finally convinced me to get into reading again by, and I picked up anatomy of state and that's kind of what started me down the, the rabbit hole of actually reading, reading. I mean, I read comic books and stuff, but like real reading. And, uh, now I, I love to do it, but yeah, once I read anatomy of state, boom, I was an anarchist. So it is like, it's kind of like once you just start reading period, once you're already down that line of philosophy, but you know, minarchist is the idea of that, you know, you want a minimum amount of, of rule, if you will. So usually that's like people usually go with courts, police, and uh, military. Uh, those are usually the basic ones. They believe that should be the minimum. Uh, and, you know, most anarchists realize that's a pipe dream. And uh, assuming that it would ever stay to that minimum degree is utter foolishness. Um, but yeah, so and then anarchists is just that you don't believe we should have that period. So, I mean, yeah, which there is a... It's weird. There's like a big divide. I feel like for most of us, it's like you get to minarchists and it's a long time before you finally, or maybe not a long time, but it's like a, it's a significant jump from minarchist to anarchist because the implications from one to the other mean a lot. So yeah. I don't know. Kind of like a, a night watchman state, if you will. And yep. well, so we never really defined what a state is. I don't know if we talked about that in the first episode, but a state is, um, you know, a certain group of people that has a monopoly on the legal right to initiate force against other people mm -hmm. in a given to, um, territorial area. So that, that's what we're talking about when we refer to what a state is. I'd never heard that definition before until Anatomy of a State. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan of the illusion of authority because at, at the very root, that's what, uh, that's what it is. And by authority, I don't mean someone you're like, oh, they're a, an authority on this given subject. And you know, by authority, you mean someone that you – for some reason believes has some so, some right to you and your in your in your things like and that people accept that so because the only difference between the mob and the state is perception is really what it comes down to because the difference between it is you people perceive that the state has some right to do the things they do and whereas the idea is i know a lot of people go like well well say like oh well you know i i'm i'm, I'm never going to be an anarchist because you know we're always going to have a state but it's like 
the idea isn't that that the idea is that you recognize that it's illegitimate and that you don't accept that you can work around it. I mean, it'd be no different if you had a mob that was running your, your, your town or state or whatever. I mean, you could still be like, Hey, I don't want to get shot. So I'm going to go along with what they say. But in the, the day you still recognize they have no legitimate right to be doing what they're doing and what they're doing is wrong. So, yeah. Yeah. And any, any mob can be a passing, you know, bandit or something mm-hmm. like that. It's that what you were getting at in the end. Yeah. (laughs) What you were getting at in the end though, is that if, even if they're, you know, occupying your town and they, they uh, are forcing you and you, you know, you have to go along with it, but you don't see them as legitimate. I mean, even that means that their rule will be temporary Mm. because then they just have to keep coercing people, you know, over and over again, who eventually the gig is going to be up. So, Um, yeah. So, you know, McMakin then kind of talks about, um, um, covenant communities, this idea that, you know, anarchy doesn't mean no rules. It means no rulers. So you can mm-hmm. have a society that's organized. In fact, you know, society largely is organized without the imposition of, you know, the government. You just think about how you help your neighbor or, you know, how communities get together through voluntary efforts to do things. And I, I think largely local governments get in the way of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this kind of goes into where we're talking about like the lefty anarchists and where their kind of philosophy falls apart is they don't, they generally speaking, don't have the same concept of property rights that we do. And that, and the whole idea is, and a lot of people are like, well, wouldn't technically these covenant communities and be all intents and purposes of government? It's like, yes, but no, because the difference is they have a legitimate claim to this property. And, you know, it's completely changes the game entirely. You know, if someone has a legitimate property claim and, you know, the same idea is that if I have a house, I get to create the rules. If And that doesn't mean I get to, like, shoot you if you break the – I mean, I guess it kind of does. But, I mean, there's proportionality and such. But, you know, I have to be like, get out if you're breaking my rules. And then I have – then at that point, I have the legitimate right to use whatever force necessary to get you off my property. And, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the same basic rules that apply. Um, yeah. So that's – that. I mean, from there, I guess – a lot of people would say that kind of is very much like a uh, like a state, but it's kind of not because if they are being, I don't know, I'm kind of getting the weeds there. But basically, it's it's a way to have our cake and eat it too in a way, kind of deal. It's like we, have, <laughs> you know, what I mean. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, this this argument isn't valid in in the concept of of a government government, mm-hmm. but you can, you can always leave, and leaving is is you know it's allowed one, but I think it'd be a lot more practical. Um, to to be able to so say you live you know you you move into a certain neighborhood in a city or or maybe you live in a private city you know and first off when you move there you have to uh, like actually sign a contract and agree or you buy a piece of property knowing that it's encumbered with with certain uh, covenants mm-hmm. covenant community so so you know getting into it or I guess you could be um, born into a family that already lives there and by nature of owning the property assents to the certain covenants on that run with the land um but you know there's as opposed to a government situation where you know i could move to a different town or a different state and it doesn't matter the rules still apply to me i still have to pay taxes um you know if you're an american citizen you you could move to africa and you would still have to pay income tax so i think but <laughs> I don't, don't quote me on that. So, um, yeah, so the, the next one is uh, talking about, you already mentioned this, but uh, La Boetti's discourse on voluntary servitude saying, uh, you know, we, we don't have to, to fight a violent revolution here. All we have to do is withdraw our support for the Colossus. Mm-hmm. This is why I always say the Boog is the big dumb. Because uh, it, it it really is just unnecessary. So that's that's kind of the idea is just to get everyone to. It's kind of I was going to earlier the illusion of authority. If you can just every, get everyone, you kind of brought up too the idea that like if you can get people to recognize that they do not have a legitimate right or claim to what they are doing, then eventually it goes away. You know, like it, 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 it it's not sustainable. Because then, then it kind of then the incentives flip in a sense. Because it's like there are these people doing this thing and they have no right to do it. And people are going to start doing stuff like agorism where they start like disobeying and, but they know it's because they do it like, because they don't feel like they have some obligation to do it. It's like, um, you know what I mean? Like people now, like 
say with like taxes, say we're talking about tax evasion. People, a lot of people just don't because they have this idea that like, I have to give the government this. But it's like, if you then be like, hey, it's not theirs. And the only reason you're giving it to them is because they will put you in a cage if you don't. People will start thinking like, well, what can I get away with not giving them? And mm-hmm. then at, over time, the incentives flip and they, it's just not sustainable. Yeah. And I, I think that we'll have to have a, a deeper discussion on the boog because I largely agree with you, but, and I don't, maybe you won't disagree with what I'm going to say, but essentially there, there will, there is a point in time where I think it would be justified, but yes. it's about defining when that point is and whether or not, you know, we have, we have a long, long way to fall before we get to that point in my opinion. It, yeah. And it depends on how you define the boog. Yeah. I, I mean, I joke when I say, when I say the boog is dumb, I'm usually defining it as like a 1776.2. Like, if you're trying to replace the state with another state and that's what you're defining, which I feel like a lot of people, that's what they're defining the boog as. If you're just trying to have a violent revolution that just swaps out leaders, no, that's not going to end well for you. At best, you may have a marginal improvement in, in, at the cost of thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of lives. Yeah. So, it's like, and most likely it'll be worse. Yep. <laughs> like, and so. I, um, yeah, I was just reading, um, a book to my son to put him to bed. He's two years old and I have this old like cardboard, you know, those cardboard books that you have for toddlers. It's mm-hmm. about the uh, declaration of independence and like the founders. Um, and I, I, it's hard for me. I want him to like know the story, but it's hard to read stuff like that. Cause it's so steeped in the founding mythology. And, you know, I'm, I'm, my wife was there too. And I can't, cause I'm an autistic libertarian. I can't help but be like, yeah, well, you know, technically the government that they were living under underneath King George was a lot less repressive than what we ended up getting. <laughs> so, you know, and it's just, it's like that that episode from, um, uh, no, that movie, The Patriot with Mel Gibson. At the beginning, he's saying that he's not going to support levying troops to help the Continental Army. And he says, basically, why would I trade one tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants one mile away. And he said, you know, an elected Congress can trample a man's rights just as well as any monarch can. (laughs) So, and I was like, oh shit, he's the real OG anarchist in that movie. Yeah, he's super based in that movie. But the funny thing is like, then all his actions go counter. Although if you watch that movie, like he initially, the only reason he gets dragged into it is to kind of like, uh, save his son. Sir, sir, I forget the, the whole story, but it, he kind of gets dragged into it. But then by the end, he kind of is like sort of coerced into it. And, and at the end, he's just kind of doing the opposite thing. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, we could do an analysis of Patriot sometime. That is a yeah. good movie. And it's like, is this super base? And then it goes the opposite way. Like, you know, <laughs> I've, I've actually, I've already done that <laughs> on this Great show. Movie, though. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. I don't know, especially going back and watching it from like this lens. I watched it, I think, like right around the time the COVID stuff was really kicking off. And there were a few movies around that time that were like really, like almost borderline must sees. Yeah. And I think for some reason, some of the Patriot was one of those. Like, kind of like stirred up this, like, ooh, like, you know, fuck these people trying to, you know, screw us over type thing. Especially when there's that big, like, boog sentiment at that time yeah. i was a little i used to be a little bit more boog friendly so like uh at, at, and like right before the coup stuff was like really starting to kick off i watched that i remember be like oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think I, at that time i think it was i think the the patriot came out in like 99 mm-hmm. um and i think someone pointed out to me that around the turn of the millennium and kind of in the early millennium it was 2000 it came out june 2000 and you know around that time there were lots of rah-rah like patriotic kind of you know wondering if they were gearing the public up for a war that was going to come (laughs) and then you know in 2001 we have uh you know the invasion of afghanistan and then 2003 was the invasion of iraq iraq and you know all these movies you have coming up you know you have the patriot in 2000 you have saving private ryan in 98 um, I'm just trying to think of more movies that 
came out during them, like super patriotic movies. But so, yeah, anyways, I digress. So let's move forward here. Let's talk about Operation Mockingbird real quick. <laughs> right? <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Um, let's see. So then we kind of talk about whether or not, oh, well, we talk about agorism, you know, for, for a whole bunch of it. But let's, uh, just for the sake of time, let's go on to using politics or not using politics to advance liberty. <laughs> so literally just yesterday did a whole, um, not necessarily debate, but more of a discussion uh, round table thing on why libertarians. So anyone's really interested in that, you can go check that out. I'm sure I'll probably release it on my channel soon. But yeah, we, we had a good discussion on that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. But we'll have to link in the show notes page. You know, I've gone back and forth. Like for a long time, I was against voting at all. And I would kind of judge people that voted. You know, now I I think that's part of the purity spiral, which I think is a psyop, <laughs> is this purity spiraling. And I've, I've talked about that before on this show. Everything's a psyop. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's literally how the Stasi and the Gestapo, how they would, um, you know, break up resistance movements mm -hmm. is that they would plant agents in there and they would cause infighting which sounds familiar doesn't it which is why i'm not a fan of utilizing the political system yeah but <laughs> <laughs> i mean one of many reasons so as yeah. you can tell i'm i'm very well known for uh i mean if anyone's watches maybe you found me on, on pat on patrick show or mine i'm sure there's a good reason both channels but i am not a fan of that i am generally not aggressive about it because i come from a strategic standpoint and so, like, I can completely get – and strategy is kind of a soft science. So, like, I can understand how one could come to either conclusion. So – and it's also one of those things that I could change my mind next year or whatever. I don't know. So there's no reason being an asshole about it. I yeah. can change my mind. So I generally try not to – I feel like it's one of those discussions that if someone wants to talk about it, I'll talk about it because I know a lot of anarchists or libertarians get very upset when you tell them that – you know, I, that, you know, especially with like the Mises caucus and the Dave Smith thing going on right now, especially when I tell them like, Hey, I don't think it's going to work out like you think it will. I think a lot of them very much immediately start reading. So, uh, but I generally try not to bring it up unless they want to talk about it and then I'll go into it. But I, it's one of those things that it's almost not really worth it. Cause I mean, my stance is it's either a net negative or, or it doesn't do anything at all. So, I mean, I don't know. It's almost not really worth arguing about most of the time. So especially because we agree on 99% of things. So like, it's a matter of strategy. Well, I think that, <laughs> excuse me, you and I could have a talk about it because, you know, generally speaking, I like, I, I have been involved with the Mises caucus, but generally I, I think that they generally agree with what I have. My thoughts about it is that, you know, if you are going to be active in national politics, you're, you should be trying to convince people doing what Ron Paul did inspiring people using the political platform to speak to people and wake people up on the on the flip side of that what the mises caucus is really good at is organizing locally getting local people elected and doing that grassroots kind of thing you know to inform people teach people activism that kind of thing um but you know making change at the local level which is where i think you have infinitely more influence yeah but you know i i remain skeptical skeptical as i bet you know a whole bunch of Mises people do even yeah and i but, have my arguments against both and also yeah. and and this isn't the same antagonistic like the yeah. Mises caucus people are like almost in almost all of my homies like my online homies are basically Mises caucus folks so i'm basically philosophically yeah. there we just disagree and strategy yeah so, yeah <laughs> well and i for sure respect your opinion on that too you know <laughs> yeah no and, you bastard <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I come from more of the agorist thing. I, I think yeah. it generally doesn't serve you to be building up a platform, building up the the political route because that's what we're trying to get away from. Uh, and I also think it's inevitably, it's kind of, it's honestly, I've been thinking about it a lot lately. It's very much the same thing we we're talking about earlier: the incentive problem. Like, if you look at politics and how it goes, right. yeah. there are incentives that drive a certain way, and it's like, yeah, you're like, cool, we can use it for messaging or this or that, but it's like the incentives are going to inevitably drive it back the way you don't want to go. And sure, maybe you can get it to get short-term gains, but I think overall you're going to screw yourself over. I mean, I know there this is a whole other deep discussion. There are arguments every which way. So, but I think the incentive <coughs> problem does very much apply to political involvement in general as well. Even if 
you're just like, oh, we're just going to use it for messaging because you know what happens? These, these, these times where they use it for messaging, I actually think are when they usually do the best. And so then it then reignites this flame of like, we can use this. <laughs> you know, and then it just you fall right back into it before. I don't know? have the ring. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> exactly. it, it, it is it's a fair point though. And and um I think there is something about one political office, but certain leadership positions, and I've talked about this on the show too, but there's certain leadership positions that attract a certain type of person. And that person is documented, it's a psychopaths, it's people that don't have any conscience. Those are the people who are best at these things, whether it's being a, a, a leader in business or, or politics or anything like that. Um, yeah, and, and so the I wouldn't be naive enough to think that libertarianism would be immune to those types of personalities. And I've seen this as a lawyer. Let me tell you, I'm a lawyer, but I don't like lawyers because they're lizard people. And I, I shit you not, they are lizard people. Yeah. So anyways... Um, and they yeah, well, legit plants too. As a, there's a certain certain prominent individual who has been heavily rumored to be a plant within the Libertarian Party for a long time now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he can really run a good meeting, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they do a lot of meetings back at Langley. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think we should um, we should end on this. I think this is a good note to end on. Uh, Dave Smith's quote is: "Everybody is a minarchist." who's not an anarchist. An anarchist get accused of being utopian, but there's nothing more utopian than a minarchist. I so agree. I, yeah. I, yeah, I think that pretty much speaks for itself. So I think, I think this quote, I feel like a lot of people get pretty annoying about it in some ways, but it also holds true because it depends. You, you really got to know how to utilize this concept because there will be times where someone is like having an honest discussion with you and they're like, well, I'm an anarchist and I think we should only have this, that, and this. And he's like, well, Stalin was a minarchist. And it's like, well, you're not, I mean, okay, sure, technically, but it's like, you're not really fairly representing this individual's perspective. You know what this guy means when he says he's a minarchist. The only point that like Dave is getting at is that this is a good way to demonstrate philosophically how in, in principle <coughs> this person is no different than anyone else so it, it's not if someone is using it as a way to tell you where they're coming from don't use it as a way to misrepresent them <laughs> which i mean i don't feel like i should have to say but i've seen it a lot where people will be like oh well, fucking minarchist can be anything it's like you, you if someone says a minarchist you kind of generally know what they mean like and it, it depends on how it's going about. If you're if you're in an argument with them online and you're trying to like point out the inconsistencies, it works well. But if they're just trying to show you where they're at, like don't be a dick. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I, I think you know when it comes to trying to spread liberty and the 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 cause of liberty, I think don't be a dick is generally like a good <laughs> axiom to live by. Mm -hmm. um, but you know at the same time. You're not always dealing with with uh, people who have good intentions. So sometimes it it uh, it pays to have some scales on you. Sometimes it uh it's it makes sense to approach people with derision, especially since we very much usually exist in this online world. You got to take into account that a lot of times you're dealing like if you're trying to interact with someone and actually change their mind in one way on a one on one you're going to deal with someone in a much different way than if you know there are onlookers. And in a social media environment, if you're arguing with someone online, you know there are probably tens or hundreds or however many people watching from the outside. So there is something to slam dunking on people and, you know, making fun of them and, you know, just derision in general. It, it has its place. But uh, also you got to got to kind of balance it that's been something i've been talking about a little bit recently i kind of joked a little bit that maybe we should develop a new pill i think they're i've been proposing the green pill because um and that, that would be someone who's new or learning or on their on their journey if you will because we have our blue blue pills which i mean blue pill doesn't actually necessarily mean bad but i've seen a few examples where you know whether it be me or other people dogpile on someone and you're like but but just if you would just like 
chill. Like you, you thought they were a blue pill, but really they're like a new red pill that's on their journey and they're learning and you just completely shit all over them. <laughs> what, what's, uh, what's the mix between blue and red? Is it purple? Yeah, it's a purple. Yeah. Purple is kind of uh, gay though. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as, as is anyone that's not a red pill is kind of gay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we, we have uh now that we're going to get canceled because yeah. something that benign can be canceled, but um yeah they fellow travelers is the the way i like to put it you know and you can be a fellow traveler and be someone like jimmy Dore or you know caitlin johnstone but in our libertarian position i think yeah yeah it's awesome to slam dunk on people when we need to but if if there's a coalition that we can make on people who are good on a certain important issue i think that's really important mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's not as simple as we are very much binary thinkers in a lot of ways, us libertarian folks. Yeah. We fall into that trap a lot. And especially when we're talking about interacting with human beings, it's not always binary. So you do have yeah. to very much you gotta you gotta think this stuff through. Read some things like Bernays and some propaganda or just you know, I don't know, just talk to people like a human being and, and learn how to deal with them. It's not as simple as ones and zeros, which we tend to fall in. That's something I've been talking about a lot lately too, is that we're very much Private company, bro. Did it break yeah. the NAP? It's always zeros and ones, and sometimes it's not that simple, especially when you're talking about how to interact with human beings, which I think is something we struggle with a lot of times. So just that's something we could use a whole lot more looking into for a lot of us. So <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, um, right, what you said. It's either, for us, it's either aggression or it's not, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's the end of the inquiry. Yes, it's like, so. but, but did they break the NAP? No, okay. okay. <laughs> Okay. Then All right. Well, well, what problem could you have with that? I don't... So, exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right, man. Well, where can people find your work at? You can find me on YouTube, the No Way Jose YouTube channel. I'm just about everywhere audio podcasts are at as well. I like money. So give me money at patreon.com. So it's No Way Jose 2020. And yeah, that's it. I'm so crypto hungry right now, but that's another episode. So, all right, man. Well, until next time, we're we're planning a part three. Will that that will be the final part? Yes, it'll be the final part. Ideally, I would like to get a special guest. We'll see how that goes. I haven't approached them yet, uh, but if not, I don't. It might just be me and you again. Not just me and you. Me and you are fucking awesome. But uh, yeah, I mean, we'll, yeah. we'll see how this goes. I would. I'd like to kind of have the last one go out with a bang. So yeah. yeah. Well, sounds great, man. Uh, well, we'll catch you next time. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank you.